Real Presence Live. That which is beautiful will manifest itself in truth and in goodness. Local. The challenges that we're facing in our generation, we just need the gospel. I mean, every every culture, every generation just needs to know how the gospel applies. Engaging. We don't bring any life at all to the church. The church is, is the life. It gives us the life. Live. The reality is, He is all things beautiful, capital B. And so anything that is authentically beautiful draws us, even if we don't realize it, to God. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Real Presence Live. I'm Father Brian Gross, your host for this morning. Um, I am here in Bismarck, North Dakota at St. Mary's High School, uh, broadcasting um, from this beautiful new place. Uh, and so thanks for joining us. Um, this morning we've got a good show. We're going to have Dr. Joseph Stewart on from the University of Mary. He's going to be talking about his new book, Rethinking the Enlightenment, Faith in the Age of Reason. Um, then we'll be speaking with Father Dominic Bauck, also from the University of Mary, about his ministry as um, the university chaplain out there and his interactions with students and so on. And then uh, the second hour, we're going to have Dennis and Judy Miller on, uh, talking about faith and farming, and including um, with uh, Mike Kudrowski uh, for a little conversation with him. So um, it's good that uh, you're able to listen this morning, and uh, hopefully things are going well for uh, everybody during these days. Let's, um, how about we, uh, as we prepare for this uh, next couple hours, let's uh, say a little prayer. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord Jesus, we thank you for uh, the gift of our faith and this opportunity to um, be inspired by uh, all the things that you desire us to hear this morning. And so we ask uh, for the presence of uh, your Holy Spirit here as we pray. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Dr. Joseph Stewart. Yes, good sir. morning. How are you doing? Good morning, Father. Good morning, Father. I'm doing great. Good to hear your voice. Yeah, good to hear your voice as well. Um, it sounds very clear, not hoarse or anything like that. That's a good thing That's in good. these days, right? So, That's good, yeah. So you wrote a book, huh? Yeah. I'm, ex- I'm excited to talk to you about this, Rethinking the Enlightenment, Faith in the Age of Reason. Um, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start off with uh, maybe a, a question, um, a very, very loaded question, okay? You yeah. ready for? Are you ready for it? Enlight- <laughs> enlightenment, good or that's, bad? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, we can start there, sure. Yeah, yeah. What, what do you think, good or bad? Well, it's... It's, I mean, it's the paradox of, of both and. It really is. It's like any age of the Church where you have light and darkness, and the point of the book is to show both sides of it. Right. Good, good. Yeah. So, yeah. so, you know what? I, I asked you a question because I, like, I know you well and everything, so, but I need you yeah. to tell everybody who's listening um, kind of you know, who you are um, and what your, uh, what your role is out there at the university. Sure, yeah. Well, so Dr. Joseph Stewart here at the University of Mary. I'm an Associate Professor of History. And I also teach with Catholic Studies, and uh, I'm married to Barbara, and we have two little girls and uh, one little son now on the way in about a month here. That's great. That, that was like the introduction you give when you're like going on retreat in high school and you're scared to talk to people, you know? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so so what, what brought you to, um, like, you know, what was happening where you said, you know, I need to, I need to talk about the Enlightenment, I, I want to write this book, what... Where um, kind of what was the inspiration for this uh, to come come uh, coming from? Sure. So yeah, rethinking the Enlightenment, faith in the age of reason. Here, this was actually not my idea. It was um, presented mm. to me 
by the publisher, Sophia Institute Press. Uh, they wrote an email to me and said, uh, would you write this book? And they, and they told me kind of what they wanted it to do. And, and I said, wow, um, sure. That, I can't believe that, uh, you know, this, this is my first book and I have a young family and I don't know how this can be done, but God's grace and it happened. Awesome. So tell us what the Enlightenment is. Sure. So the Enlightenment is referring to the 18th century mainly, and it was a very exciting time of new ideas, the new possibilities of science and technology, and of human reason to solve problems. And uh, yeah, it was a time of, of uh, restraint and moderation in uh, human affairs and in the relations between people, and the idea that there's a, a certain kind of um, rules of decorum that should, should govern human interactions, it's a sort of formalism. Uh, that was there. And um, so, very exciting time. Lots of new things, new ideas, everything from Benjamin Franklin in America to Pope Benedict XIV in Rome. We can talk about him in a little bit. Uh, what's happening? Okay. So, when we um, use the word enlightenment, right? I mean, that word in itself is kind of loaded um, to suggest something about what happened before and what was happening afterwards, right? Enlightenment. Mm-hmm. Like, like everything up before this time period that you're talking about, the 18th century of the Enlightenment, everybody was just kind of like living in darkness and, and there was, um, you know, sort of, you know, cavemen and, you know, all, you know that sort of thing. So, so like, where does, uh, you know, how, do, how does that word enlightenment, do you think, um, maybe contribute to the truth of what that period is and, and maybe also maybe show us some of the things that aren't true about it, if that makes sense? Yeah, no, that, that does. Yeah, well, first of all, the people of the time didn't really think of themselves, and they didn't use the word enlightenment. We mainly use that as a later word, you know, back on the time period. But they certainly saw themselves as living in a, in a, in a modern age, they would have called it, and uh, something that was really you know, trying to privilege uh, reason. And so I guess you could think of it, um, they're, build, they're certainly building on the shoulders of giants, so the, those previous ages that were before them, many of the, the great thinkers from, you know, Galileo, even all the way back to Aristotle, uh, the, the ghosts of those people, so to speak, uh, hovered over the century. And I think the people were aware of that, but it's, they were just try, excited to try to go beyond uh, some of the thinking of the past into, into new areas, particularly in the physical sciences. And so when we're talking about the light uh, of the time and, and sort of Christ being a light, too, in a Christian sense, then you can see that light, in so far as it's shining into the truth of what the, the physical creation is and, and even the physical bodies of human beings, to this anatomy and, and medical advancements that were made, um, that is, is sort of the light of reason in, in a positive sense in the age. Um, in the, the other side of the coin is the, the sort of darkness that comes through when you, um, you, you sort of reduce reason to simply you know, understanding the, the physical world, and, and then you say, well, and that's all you can understand. Right, and then um, this this begins to affect your understanding of human beings, and uh, that can can certainly lead to a, a darkness. So you're you know there's two sides of the coin. You see, like there's the the deepening desire um, to recognize uh, you know what it is that God has created and what He's doing, but then there's also in some ways right this beginning to re- this be- the beginning moment of moving away from the transcendent, right, moving away from the spiritual and. And, and focusing overly on what it is that we see and touch and taste, right, and all that stuff. Yeah, okay, that's right. So, so yep. how how is it that you um, kind of pull all of this? Like, what are some of the what are some of the key points that you um, make in in your book in regards to? Yeah, sure. So, uh, so rethinking the Enlightenment, right? Faith in the age of reason is uh, mainly about 
Christian's interaction with the Age of Reason. What, just, what did that look like? And, and the reason that's important is because that's when modernity was born, modernity being kind of this modern world that we live in, for good and for ill, uh, was born during this time. And so the question I simply had was, well, you know, if we think about, want to think about today how to relate to the world around us, well, what did that look like at a different time, and what could we learn from them, sort of looking backwards? And what I came to uh, was uh, three strategies that were used by Christians to interact with the, with the Enlightenment. We can talk about them more in detail later if we want, but I'll just sort of sketch them out for now. But the first is the idea of conflict, and that's with this, this enlightenment and sort of the dark side of it, the endarkenment, uh, the, this hmm. conflict. And this story is particularly happened in France uh, here, and it culminates with the French Revolution and the, just the attack, the brutal attack on Catholics and the Church and the, the famous Carmelites of Compiègne martyrs. Um, so I tell those stories in part one of the book. Part two is a totally different approach. It, it's about engagement of the Enlightenment in a really serious way by sophisticated Catholics in Italy and Germany, including the papacy, who were really trying to um, take the best of the thought of the day and try to up- update or, or sort of uh, reinterpret the faith in, in, to make it more relevant to people of the day through Enlightenment reasoning. So that's part two, Italy and Germany. And then part three is on retreat. And, and I mean that in a spiritual sense of sort of just, you know, you, you don't have to conflict or engage. You can just sort of ignore <laughs> what's going on around you in the modern world and just pay attention to building up the faith within your households, within the church, within, you know, and just do your thing. And, and here we focus on the English-speaking world and how this retreat strategy inward, this inward kind of movement, then exploded outward in, in a incredibly dramatic new evangelization uh, of the day that uh, that we can talk more about. But those are the three, so conflict, engagement, and retreat. So when I think of the Enlightenment, um, I tend to have a very negative view of it. <laughs> uh, but your, you know, what you're um, talking about is it's both sides, right? But, but you're really trying to pull out, it sounds like this, the, the positive uh, ends of the Enlightenment. So could you speak here a little bit... Um, about, you know, you talked about part two and about Italy and, and so on, other places, engaging the Enlightenment and really using it for good for the Church. Um, could you pull out some examples of, of how that occurred or what, what was done? Sure, yeah. Yeah, so one uh, unfortunately forgotten figure of this time, Ludovico Muratori, who wrote, uh, he was a priest and uh, Italian, very famous, known throughout Europe. He wrote this famous book in, in 1747 called The Science of Rational Devotion. Hmm. The Science of Rational Devotion. Uh, fascinating. And he said, look, basically, faith and reason need to purify each other, uh, which is something that Pope Benedict XVI in our own time has said very forcefully. In, 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 and it's a both end. It's not like faith just sort of like, it just says, you know, oh, well, we should have a little reason here. No, I mean, there, there's, a, there's a real purificatory role that reason plays in our, not only our faith, but in our very devotional lives. And this is what this book is about. It, so if, if true devo- if devotion doesn't help us correct our vices, regulate the affections of our hearts, practice restraint and moderation, and if it doesn't do that, then it's not, it's not real devotion. It's, just, it's leading us off towards superstition or emotionalism or all these kinds of things, and so we really need to ground, ground our, our devotion in, in a connection to... Uh, to rationality. This is, his, this is his point. So this is one way into the kind of very uh, intimate parts of, of Catholic life that uh, Enlightenment reasoning came. Um, I'll give you a couple more here. One, one was, um, you know, 
further dis- distinguishing between the natural and the supernatural. Uh, so both are important, but they're distinct, and there's, di- and there's, there's distinct ways of understanding those, those two realities. So the natural world should be understood using uh, human reason and, and physical science. And this is important when it comes to, to medicine, for example. In the, the 18th century, there was a lot of quack medicine going on, uh, lots of, of um, what we would call New Age remedies uh, for things that were all around and um, taking advantage and ripping off people. And so pastors of churches and things, you know, needed to sort of help their people sort of think, okay, look, you know, medical problems are medical, and we need to, to deal with them at that level. We can also think about it in, in terms of spirits and you know, spiritual oppressions, but those are two distinct things, and we need to keep those things, you know, in order in our, in our minds. Hmm. So when we, when we uh, think about the 18th century, I know when I read, like, let's say, for example, um, Actually, I'm, I'm thinking of the book Kristen Laverin's Daughter, right? R- okay. r- written by Sigrid Inset. And <clears throat> you see in there, it's a historical fiction, right? I think is what we call those things. Um, and there's this, mi- and maybe this is what you're talking about, like there's this mix between kind of some of the, like, the ma- more pagan kind of um, principles and the Christian principles, right? And, and, yep. and there's this, and then there's inability to recognize that, well, that's that's the natural course of things. And it's, so what you're saying is the Enlightenment, in some ways, helped us to make the proper distinction between this is the way God has ordered the world, and mm-hmm. this is a spiritual reality, as opposed to just, like, everything is spiritual. Every single thing right. is spiritual, right? Is that kind of what you're yeah. getting at? Okay. That's exactly it. That's exactly it. Yeah, it's this idea of positive secularity. That was a quotation, again, from, from Joseph Ratzinger. Uh, and this idea that the, the secular world is good in itself because it's made by God, and we need to understand it on its own terms to the extent that we can. And this has major implications for not just medicine, but also um, politics. And this is something you know else we could talk about. But but Catholics were very afflicted in the 18th century with a kind of political correctness that wanted to just go along with the state, especially in France. You know, the state you know should just decide, and the church and the state were very close together. And this led to unbelievable kinds of abuses uh, in, in denial of other religions, um, their, their freedom of, of worship, and there was an actual attempt to sort of force people to be Catholic. And uh, this is, you know, part of our story that we need to understand and not be embarrassed about, because we just need to, to see how it happened. And the Enlightenment helped. I won't say it's the only cause, of course, because there's plenty of resources within the Christian tradition to understand the freedom that's involved in faith. But the Enlightenment helped to uncover, or recover, some of those older traditions from the early Church uh, about the importance of, of freedom and faith, and the Enlightenment really helped to, to uncover that. Hmm. That's fascinating. Good. So, um, Dr. Stewart, we're going to head to a break at this point, uh, and when we come back uh, on the other side of the break, um, we're going to continue to have this conversation. I, I think I want to maybe dive into some of the, more of the, um, the figures, the individuals um, who were... Uh, part of this uh, time in our history. Um, Maybe we can talk about how they helped to um, make some good, important changes uh, for us as Catholics. Yeah, that'd be great. Okay, so we're going to go to break. Everybody stay tuned. We'll be right back. Stay with us. There's more Real Presence Live to come on the Real Presence Radio Network.
It's a great time to spring into summer at Riverview Senior Living Community in Fargo. Hi, I'm Carrie Dew, Executive Director. We are currently accepting new independent and assisted living residents. Riverview provides a safe, comfortable place to live with a small town Main Street feel with home-cooked food, a la carte care services, daily activities, and mass five days a week. You can contact Marin or Katie to find out about all that Riverview has to offer at 701-237-4700 or at homeishere.org. If you have ever been through the hell of deep darkness and suffering, like the suicide of a loved one, do you know that your experience may be helpful to someone else? I'm Father Chris Alar. Mercy is defined as a particular mode of love that when love encounters suffering, it does something about it. And when you exercise the corporal and spiritual works of mercy, you are truly loving your neighbor. Jesus said, when a soul approaches me with trust, I fill it with an abundance of graces that it cannot contain it within itself, but radiates them to other souls. Let us show you how to be that radiator and find healing for yourself in the process. Please visit suicideandhope.com so I can personally pray for anyone you've lost and to get our book, After Suicide, There's Hope for Them and You, which helps with any kind of suffering or loss, not just suicide. I promise it will help. As a sole provider, the needs of my growing family are something I pray for daily. I know continuing my education will benefit my family in the end, but I worry about what I'll miss while doing so. University of Mary knows that choosing to continue your education at this point in life can be both challenging and rewarding. That's why we've created a robust portfolio of truly affordable, truly flexible, and truly formative online programs to make choosing easy. Visit us at catholicprofessional.life. That's dot L-I-F-E. You're listening to Real Presence Live. Now, back to more inspirational and uplifting stories and a look at the extraordinary things happening in our local area. Heard right here on the RPR Network. Welcome back to Real Presence Live. I'm Father Brian Gross, your host this morning, talking with Dr. Joseph Stewart, um, who teaches out at the University of Mary. So um, all of you listening should send all of your children and grandchildren to the University of Mary. Um, it's one of the best uh, universities in the country, especially if you're looking um, to raise your children or uh, to move your kids into adulthood, right, and, and help them um, with all the tools they need to live their faith and just be a good human being in, in this, these days that we live in. Um, and with that kind of in mind, this, this need for us to, to really, um, again, as Catholics, uh, daily and, and all the time, uh, really sort of analyze uh, and look at ourselves and how do we fit in? Where are we? What are we supposed to be doing in these uh, days that we live in that just seem to get um, sort of crazier and crazier? Uh, uh, Dr. Joseph Stewart writes this book, Rethinking the Enlightenment, Faith in the Age of Reason. Um, and we're in this moment in history where uh, spirituality and, and the need for the church is really just put way, 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 way in the back of so many people's lives. And so as, as Christians, we're continually trying to draw people back into the fact that um, that Jesus is real, that he wants a relationship, that he uh, is, uh, is the one that satisfies. And so, you know, Dr. Stewart, um, during this time of the Enlightenment, uh, during the churches uh, sort of struggling with some of these new ideas, these new things that are being said, uh, we're always going to have figures, right, that step forward, and these figures are going to be um, really help lead us in, in the way that God wants. And so, if you would, uh, you know, before, uh, and if you, I'm going to ha- have you explain some of the... Um, 
I talk about some of these people, but before we do that real quick, I, I failed to mention during the last segment that we actually have a, a copy of Dr. Stewart's book to give away, and we're going to make this really, really easy. The first person to call Real Presence Radio at 877-795-0122 gets the book, okay? So again, the number is 877-795-0122. First person to call. Um, you get the book. So, Dr. Stewart, uh, if you could speak about some of the figures during this uh, time in church history that were, um, that were really important and helpful in, in moving us uh, in the direction that, that I, you know, we would say God wanted us to move in. Sure. Yeah, so Pope Benedict the Fourteenth is a figure I'd like to, to talk about a little bit. He, re- he reigned from 1740 to 1758, and um, I just I think there's a reason why our own Pope Benedict the Sixteenth chose the name Benedict, mm-hmm. and uh, and what, what that reason I think was partly Pope Benedict the Fifteenth, who was who reigned during the First World War, who was a forgotten hero of the 20th century for sure, but also this gentleman, Pope Benedict the Fourteenth. Uh, in the in the age of the Enlightenment, because he was known as the Enlightenment Pope, and uh, he was a, he was a great figure. Um, he loved coffee. Um, he built a coffee nice. house, uh, and he uh, that that was a the drink of the of the Enlightenment age, and it would just kind of set a tone of informality, friendliness, kind of geniality uh, about about him. And uh, there, one of the the best assessments of him was actually written by a Protestant, uh, Sir Horace Walpole. It goes like this. This is about Pope Benedict the Fourteenth here. Beloved by Papists, esteemed by Protestants, a priest without influence or interest, a prince without favorites, a pope without nepotism, an author without vanity, in short, a man whom neither wit nor power could spoil. Hmm. Well. So Pope, pope Benedict the Fourteenth, the reason of his greatness was that he wanted to engage the modern world not so much through, you know, power politics, church and state or otherwise, but as through culture, particularly science, history, and art. And a lot of the things that he tried to do are really reminiscent of what John Paul II talks about with the new evangelization and, and engaging culture, and that we can see the glory of God not just through text, but also through things, uh, like beautiful paintings, like the human body, like artifacts from the early church, which he worked to preserve in the Vatican museums that he started, and above all, through the saints. And so he is the great figure of the canonization process. Um, So he served as devil's advocate for 20 years, so his job was actually to argue Mm. against making a saint, because trying Mm -hmm. to find out if there were fake miracles, you know, being claimed in these things, and this is sort of classic Enlightenment rationality here, the the criticism of of miracles. And, And out of this experience, um, he wrote on the beatification and canonization of saints, 1734, a four-volume work that pr- provided basi- the, the basis for rationalized saint-making procedures uh, and a ways to bust fake miracles, um, and, and to combat both credulity, which is the, the too easy belief in something, and doubt. On the other hand, that we can know, we can know when there is a real miracle present here. Uh, and we can know that through looking at the medical background, and we can see, and we have bring in the best experts, which he did, and we can say, well, current medical science, you know, can't explain this. Um, this event is attested to by various witnesses, and therefore we can have a certainty that uh, a miracle occurred. So, in no way, in, in no way, was he against saints, obviously, right? But he's against um, the, the easy kind of belief in sort of fake miracles that sometimes pervades the Catholic world. 
And uh, he wanted real saints, uh, practical saints who can reveal the love and care for the poor and the other people. And so he commissioned paintings and and, and things of them. And and this book, you know, still inspires the canonization process of saints to this very day. Uh, Its rules for for busting fake miracles are still used to this day. And uh, that's one way that uh, he's engaging the Enlightenment. A few other ways, he uh, sponsored the Academy of Sciences in Bologna, which was part of the Papal Saints, or Papal States. And then he um, also sponsored the study of the past through history and through founding museums, uh, the first public museum uh, in the world. He helped build it up. This was a Catholic idea. This was the Capitoline Museum in Rome. Uh, other museums of London and Paris then followed decades later, realizing well, the church had a really good idea. And he also, two other things, uh, he built up an anatomy museum in Bologna for the study of the human body. And so this is kind of edgy stuff, right? You think of maybe the body works that went around the, the country and the, the world, you know, a few a decade ago or so, I think still still does, uh, using, you know, real human bodies that are plasticized to, to talk about, you know, anatomy and show what our humanity is like. It certain raises certain ethical questions, for sure. Um, well, here we have the church at the cutting edge of anatomy, which was the leading physical science in the 18th century. And what's even more interesting, uh, Father Brian, is that he really wanted to portray sexual difference. So in this museum, you have Adam and Eve uh, in their naked glory, and there was real gender confusion at the time about women in particular. Um, what is the status of women? And people were really interested in the, the, the anatomical and the psychological and the mental differences between males and females, and he said, okay, here it is. So let's lay it out, and let's do it in the context of something that's sacred. So here's Adam and Eve, and then the next set of figures, and these are all made out of beautiful wax, took 20 years to make. Um, the next figures are sort of at the muscular level, and then the nerves, and then all the way down to the bones, and the last figures in this museum are holding a sickle, uh, which is a sign of death. And so this is the anatomy of original sin, and what happens with Adam and Eve and their sin, and what, we, we die, we, the soul separates from the body, um, but in this museum you can see how faith and facts align with each other. Hmm. So this might be beyond the you know, what you would know in this, but is, so it sounds like he took the, um, in, in a sense, like sort of invented the museum. I mean, is that, or not, or is that not a correct well, thing? Well, it was the Pope right, be- right before him who really okay. invented it, but he built it up and he saw immediately, yeah, this is a good idea. We're going to build up these public museums and then we're going to also start the Vatican museums. And, uh, and so yep. he, the collections came from earlier, the Renaissance, but he's the first to say, let's open this up to the public and, and create what will become the Vatican Museums. Yeah. So the Enlightenment's focus on uh, just, you know, kind of really diving into what is it that the world is speaking to us and saying to us, uh, created by God, um, there, he kind of cast off any fear of that, right? And so mm-hmm. that's right. When, you're, when you're talking about the miracles uh, for saints and such, I mean, that's one of the things about the church. Like, I'm thinking of, like, Lourdes, for example. Um, yeah. Right, we, we uh, just because a miracle supposedly happens doesn't mean we immediately jump on the five o'clock news and declare it to be a miracle. We're like, right. if a miracle happens, that's wonderful and good and great, and that's a beautiful sign of God's uh, of God's truth. And we need to folk, we need to pay attention to that. We need to exalt that and, and and you know proclaim it to be true. But at the same time, if it isn't a miracle, I still have faith. I still have my faith. Like it, yeah, you know, that's right. Um, and so, you know. That's really that's an interesting. Um, that's yeah, right. That's, that's yeah, beautiful. and the, and the medicine and the science and the sciences can help us 
know when a miracle has taken place with, with a pretty high level of certainty. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Yep. So, so um, if you can take some of what you kind of learned in your own study and what's in the book and apply it to where we find ourselves today, uh, would mm-hmm. you be able to do that for us? Sure. I think, yeah, I think that, um, so the three strategies that we're talking about here, conflict, engagement, and retreat, I mean, they, just, they help us to understand how we, engaging with the modern world, interacting with the modern world has different sort of stages, different sort of seasons to it. And we have to watch for the signs of the times to see, you know, which is most appropriate, maybe not even as a universal strategy, but as a, as a local strategy. Uh, and so when things are going on, you know, whether it's a time in the 18th century, you know, the, there was slavery, right? And Christians realized, whoa, this is bad. We need to fight against this. And so they did. And in, in Britain, they, they went to the parliament and they, uh, they ended slavery in the British Empire for the first time. And that happened through very devoted conflict with uh, in, very entrenched interests, right? So you have the, the political scene in which conflict is often um, part of the game. Um, but you also have the cultural scene in which you want to engage with an open-mindedness with the, the ideas and the realities of the people and try to get them to see the truth, um, goodness, and beauty that's inherent in, within culture. Um, and then at other times, you want to focus on catechizing your kids and your parishioners, and you want to stay home, and you want to ignore everything else, and you want to focus on, on the, uh, the, the domestic church, the local church, and, and building that up from within. And I guess... Each of these strategies has different weaknesses if, if it's isolated from the others. Um, and what I mean by that is if, you're only, if we're only focused on politics and the conflict and the dust of the, and the heat of the day, um, then we sort of have a, a conflictual mentality, I call it, where we start seeing everything in terms of conflict. And, and so pretty soon Christians start conflicting with each other. Uh, over un- unnecessary things, and this this was a tragic story in the 18th century when the where the Catholics the, the Catholics were persecuted the Protestants in this kind of false conflict, and then they persecuted fellow Catholics that was the Jansenists, and then other Catholics that was the Jesuits, and they actually destroyed the Jesuit order, our own people, um, and then they conflicted with uh, various other people, and that this caused a lot of scandal and really um, weakened and undermined Christianity in the 18th century, um, and so. Conflict has to be balanced with engagement and, and wisdom coming from retreat, for sure, in order to have a kind of sophisticated, holy uh, Christianity emerge. So what I hear you you know, talking about is um, the Church really sort of struggling during this period, and, and how we can look at it and apply it to today is uh, interesting, really, very similar, actually. You know, I mean, it's the reason I suppose you wrote the book, right, is that Mm-hmm. You can go. You can go way too far. Let's, a parent, right? For example, right? You can go way too far in one direction and just say, "All that matters is my kid is um, completely involved in every possible thing that he or she could be involved in, whether it's sports, right. you know, music, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera." And then completely forget the spiritual, right? Yeah. And then you can right. move on. You can then you can move way in the other direction and just and and have this other mentality that says. Um, Everything that isn't the rosary and the mass and prayer yeah. is evil, and so the way my kid is going to be good is that I need to be just like super overprotective and like right. and and like try to hide them from the world, right? And what the church yeah. is constantly saying is there's this middle reality, you know. Obviously, charity That's prime, right. and you can you can never have too much charity, right? But. Um, we got about yeah. 30 seconds or so left, uh, Dr. Stewart, um, if, uh, and of course, you know, we could keep talking about this uh, for the whole show, but um, if, uh, if you in the last 30 seconds or so here could just kind of sum it up for us and, and uh, yeah, go ahead. Sure. 
Sure, yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Father Brian. So this, this book here that's just now available from Sophia Institute Press, um, from their website, also at Amazon and Barnes & Noble, uh, Rethinking the Enlightenment, Faith in the Age of Reason, is demonstrating the importance of the history of Christian culture and seeing how different parts of the kingdom of God can, can work together uh, for a strong Christianity to emerge, as it did in the Age of the Enlightenment, can again today. And and this is why we study this subject here at the University of Mary, the, the history of culture, history of Christian culture, and trying to understand the present and, and even, you know, the future uh, actions of what we should do um, by way of, of looking toward the past for inspiration from great figures like Pope Benedict XIV that I've, I've talked about this morning, uh, and other people like the Carmelites of Compiègne, the great martyrs uh, who are in the first part of the book, and, and many others. And uh, so that's, that's what this book is about. All right, Dr. Stewart, thanks for being on with us this morning. Again, everyone, I encourage you to, to go out and get that book. Um, I know it would uh, be very, very, very good. And so um, be, uh, be, uh, stay tuned, everybody, and we'll be right back with Father Dominic Bauck, who's the chaplain um, at the University uh, of Mary. And so uh, we'll have some great conversation with him. Stay tuned. Live, engaging, and local, this is Real Presence Live where we bring you positive and uplifting stories and share the great things happening in our local area on the Real Presence Radio Network.